If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, this is the last week we'll be in 1 Peter. Um, uh, we are looking at the entire chapter today. Um, we'll, yeah, the entire chapter. So if you have one, you can go ahead and open. I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Um, we're talking about elders, um, not only elders, but also uh, those in the church. Um, and what are some responsibilities that we all have um, as elders and as those that would just uh, be a part of the church. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll jump in together. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy that you've given to us. We pray for this time together in your word. We pray that you would come now and by the power of the Spirit and move. And that as we look at your word, that it would have its effect on us. We know that your word is able to teach us. It's able to build us up. And I pray, God, that it would do its work today. I pray for us all as we hear these things about um, what elders uh, should look like, how they should, how they should um, lead, as well as the church, church members. What should we, um, as church members, be doing in our own life? I pray that you would um, give us hearts, not just, to, not just to hear it, not just to understand it, but to live it out. I pray that we have a deep desire to want to live these things out. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Peter 5, uh, I'm going to read the text and then we will, we will get started. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Um, as I, I think I've told you all before, we're, we're doing, um, as we're doing 1 Peter 5, the big idea that Peter's writing to is a group of people that had been kind of dispersed all over. And as they're being dispersed now, there's several churches around um, four different regions or so. You can see it in chapter 1, verse 1. And so because of that, after they had been dispersed, <clears throat> more churches had started up, at least a dozen, maybe more, had started up. And so as they're writing, Peter's wanting to address, you know, the different things about submission and why the government's doing this and suffering. But he's also wanting to give advice to churches and church member, church pastors and church members as well. So he's finishing up the letter, helping them understand as you've been dispersed out and you're starting your new churches, these are some things you need to know as well. So, um, verse 1. Therefore, I, ex- I exhort the elders among you. If you're not familiar with, with church or things like that and you see elders, don't, don't think elderly. <laughs> that just means the pastors. Elders, pastors, these are synonymous words in the New Testament. Elders, pastors. Um, therefore, uh, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to all to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's the final greetings. So, before we get into um, this kind of text on elders, I want to read another, another text that's very similar um, and this is written by Luke in the book of Acts, and this is, but it's highlighting Paul. So in, in, in Acts chapter 20, Paul had, was in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus, and he'd been there for a little while, and he's about to leave, and as he's about to leave, he's speaking to the elders, and he's going to say some of the similar t- type of language. So I want to read that as well, so you can kind of put it all together and hear um, this, this exhortation to pastor elders to make sure that they shepherd, flock, uh, shepherd the flock that they have. Verse 27, uh, we're picking up, well, I'll read 26. Therefore I testify to you that this day I'm innocent of the blood of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So here we have Paul as an elder, and he said, every day I was willing to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Um, Pay careful attention to yourselves, and here it is, and to all the flock in which the Holy Seer has made you overseer to care for the church of God. So we see that elders are supposed to shepherd the flock of God that's among them, exercising oversight. Or as it says here, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church. So we see that Without question, pastors are supposed to oversee the particular flock that they've been given. Don't take offense that you're being called a flock. You're not, you're not you know, animals like sheep. We understand it's just a, it's just a metaphor. Um, but he says, but more than that, the Holy Spirit has actually made you the overseer. And as you're overseeing, you're supposed to care for that church. Why? Because of which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, <clears throat> in verse 29... He's talking about when he leaves, but when he does, he's going to talk about some of the responsibilities elders should have and why they're so important. Elder pastors, synonymous word. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, we're not, we're not actually talking about wolves coming here, like real wolves. We're talking about people that are acting like they're wolves, coming in trying to... Wolves kill sheep. That's what they want to do. So people that aren't Christians will, will go into the church. They won't be necessarily in here on Sunday morning, but they might be with you and amongst you throughout the week. And their, their only desire is to pull you away from being a church member, pull you away from Jesus, if you will. And it says, I know that these fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock and from your own selves. Men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So we can read from that. Pastors should be on the alert wanting to find the people that are in their church and not let the wolves kill them. But also, how are we going to do that? He says they're going to, they're going to speak twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. So we need to be able to, pastor elders need to be able to equip you with as much truth as possible. So that when they speak twisted things, you, you, your alarms are sounding off like, that's twisted. That's incorrect. Because, hopefully, on the whole, 
as Paul went all the way back up to verse 27, pastor elders have been declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's, that's the entirety of the book. It's not just picking certain topics that we love or beating our drum of the one thing we like, but we're, we're doing the best we can to teach you all the stuff, even the stuff that might be uncomfortable to teach, all of it, so that whenever people come in and tw- teach twisted things, you're ready and you won't be pulled away by a wolf. Therefore, he tells them, be alert, remembering that for three years, or he, the be alert, by the way, is to elders. It's to elders. Elders be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, dare not to admonish you. Now, notice here that the pastor elder's job is not just to do like Paul, admonish the congregation. But notice those last two words. I did not, um, decl- I did not cease to, day and night to admonish you, everyone, with tears. There's a deep, necessary, emotional investment that a pastor elder must make to his church. It's not stand up here and just tell you the things so you can get your life in order. There's a deep emotional love that pastor elders must have for their people. And if it's not there, they shouldn't be a pastor elder. So there's a deep love they have to have. Because they care for them so much, they want to keep them from being drawn away by twisted things. Not because they want to crack a whip and make you fall in line and think you get it together. We Do what I say. That's not, that's not the motivation. It's, I love you so much. I want to see you be sanctified. I want to see you persevere in Christ. And then he says, and now, closing up some of the stuff he says, and now I commend to you God. Now I commend... You to God and to the word of his grace. Notice what the Bible does. It's so great. Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Just another verse, by the way, to stick in your, in your holster for what the great things that the word can do. So we have kind of that as the, uh, the I, I think that's a good backdrop as we're going into First uh, Peter 5. Just to see the real importance of a pastor elder. Uh, shepherd. You can fill in the word that you want to. It's just, for us, we call them elders, pastors. For us here at Remedy, that's me and Jack and Lord willing, more in the future. Now, um, just some other things I want, I want you to see. We're going to get to the list there. <clears throat> There's a, you know, a, a, an obvious list of characteristics of oversight that elders need to have there in verses 2 and 3. But I want to I show you a couple things here in verse 2 that I think are, are important. Um, you're, as you're hearing this, you're going to be thinking, is he does he think he's preaching to a room full of pastors? I, I, I know I'm not, okay? But I'm preaching the word. I'm, I'm trying to declare the whole council. Maybe one of you will be pastor elders one day. Or I also want you to know what you should expect of a pastor elder. You're not all going to be here one day. So whenever you move to another city, or perhaps the Lord will keep you here, I want you to have things in your, in your mind of what, what a pastor elder should have in their life. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder... And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock. Now, the word shepherd here, this is the Greek word pastor. So what he's done is he's taken the word pastor from Ephesians 4, uh, poieo, I think it is, and turned it into a verb. And so he's telling you to pastor. He's telling you to shepherd them, to, to tend for them, to care for them, to be there for them. Shepherd the flock of God, uh, the flock... One thing I think is important for pastors to never forget when he says, shepherd the flock of God. Uh, the, the, the flock obviously is um, a metaphor that they're sheep and he's the, the shepherd. But never forget this. All pastors should never get this. Verse 4 says, Jesus is the chief shepherd. 
So all pastor elders, they're also sheep too. I'm not like the shepherd and you're the sheep. I'm a sheep with you. Jesus is the chief shepherd. That's what it says in verse 4. And I, I, I'm just a member like you, a church member. I also am an elder, but I'm also a sheep. Um, Jack and I are just like you in every regard that we have a desperate need for Christ continually. So when we see shepherd the flock, the, the pastor elder should never, ever, ever forget that he's also a sheep too. That way he doesn't ever get too high and mighty in his own mind. But I, I'm just as desperate and needy for the gospel as you are as well. Because as it said in verse 4, the chief shepherd, he's the lead pastor of the church and he's going to come one day and make everything glorious. So, and the last thing I, I, I want to point out is shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The among you is, is pretty important. Um, pastor elders should not try to pastor elder other people's churches. They should try to pastor their own church. That's, that's enough responsibility. Um, they shouldn't try to do other people's job. God has given every pastor the church that he wants them to pastor, the people that he wants them to lead. And he, they would do well just to focus on those people and not try to pastor the others. So that, that's just some things, some notes before we go into. As we're going into the turn there where it says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, how should you do that? You should exercise oversight. The, ex, the, the verb exercise oversight is, is all kind of one Greek word, episkopeo. It's where the, the episkopean comes from. And this is just overseer. And so we're, we're told that we need to oversee you. As we've read even in, in Acts chapter 20. And then he's going to tell us how we should oversee. So there's, there's characteristics of the oversight that pastor elders should have. So shepherd the flock of God or, or pastor them, tend to them by exercising oversight. And then how, and then you see these not but statements, not but three of them. And so that's the first little title, if you will, that we're going to look at. Characteristics of oversight um, for elders. I have a longer title, but it didn't fit, Rip. So I'm going to read you the long title. I had to keep it short or else it was like, like one of those, you know, keep going things. So characteristics of oversight that elders must have when serving the church. Or characteristics of oversight for elders. Uh, and there, you can see they're all right there in the text. Um, Calvin, looking at this, just makes a broad statement. Um, cautioning elders. He says this. In exhorting pastors to their duty, he points out three vices, especially, which are often to be found. Three vices, namely, sloth, desire for gain, and lust for power. And so there's a, there's a caution that Peter does on those three, and you'll see them. Sloth, desire for gain, lust for power, in that order. So a Peter addresses them, and, and so looking at the text, we'll address them. So characteristics of oversight. The first one is that you should not pastor or elder under compulsion, but you should be willing to do it. Number one, not under compulsion, but willing. Pastor elders should never ever pastor elder or oversee their church just under compulsion, but instead they should be willing to do it. That means we're not doing it just because it needs to be done. Someone's got to step up, so I guess I will. Um, that's not how, that's not never a reason to pastor elder. We shouldn't just pastor because, well, I guess I'm obliged to since no one else is. It's an, it's an absolute calling and we should absolutely make sure that we are called to do it. In context, we can see that that's, that's important because just in First Peter, the whole sermon, the, the whole book is about suffering. So in context, you shouldn't 
step up and be a pastor unless you're willing to take on the suffering. Because most likely, if suffering or persecution comes, the pastor is going to be on the front line of the persecution, usually in churches, especially outside of America. So you should never just willing say, I'm going to do it under compulsion, but you should instead be willing. And then also, another reason just... In scripture, as we see in James 3.1, that pastor elders are going to be judged with greater strictness. And so there's no reason to just step up and say, well, no one else is going to do it. I guess I'll do it. Instead, realize there's a calling with it. And so because of that, we must be willing to do it. Being a pastor elder isn't for someone that's faint of heart. It isn't for someone that I, I think is weak. It isn't for someone that's fickle. But at the same time, all pastors should be careful whenever I say that because they must realize the only way you're ever going to pastor a church, shepherd a church, is by uh, not because you think you're strong, not because you think you're not fickle, but because Jesus in his own strength is the one that equips us and provides us with strength to be able to do it. So there's a caution when I say that. Pastors must be willing here. So in the contrast, they shouldn't do it under compulsion, but instead they should be willing, which means pastors, and let's, let's make the obvious transition that for, so that this isn't just for me and Jack, right? And that the rest of you are just kind of listening in. The obvious transition is therefore for every community group leader, you shouldn't just do it because you feel obliged. You should, with your 12 to, group, 12 to 15 people, you should pastor them. You should shepherd them because you're willing to. You want to. Dads, you shouldn't just lead your kids and your wife because you feel obliged to, but because you're willing to, because you want to. And we can even apply this to everyone in the church, to roommates, to spouses or, who, or whatever. You shouldn't just... Be- Whatever position you're in, want to oversee, help people, serve them, love them, care for them, tend to them. Not just because you feel obliged. Moms that, stay-at-home moms that are homeschooling uh, your kids or wives that are working to make sure you can provide for your family or roommates or to-be wives one day. You shouldn't ever just be in that position because you feel obliged to. But instead you want to. You want to do that. You're willing because you want to. So that means you want to be there. You're willing and you want to be there for people. You're willing and you want to serve people. You're willing and you want to walk through tragedies in people's lives. You're willing and you want to rejoice with them when they have good news. You're willing and you want to preach the gospel faithfully to each other every day. Whether it be from the stage or whether it be in your family as dads continually helping your kids understand the gospel, or even moms when you're teaching your kids every day. You're willing and you want to teach the gospel to them. And for me, I'm willing and I want to do my best to encourage you to do evangelism every day. I want to do these things. So pastors should not ever step into the role of shepherd of the church under compulsion. They should be willing to do it. They want to do it. So the first characteristic of oversight is not under compulsion, but willing. So whatever position you're in of any kind of leadership, I want you to really, really think about this. Am I doing this because I want to, or am I doing this because I feel obliged? Now, if you're doing it because you feel obliged, I'm not saying, then drop out. (laughs) I'm saying, ask the Lord to change your heart to actually deeply desire to do it. All right, the second one.
Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain means I'm doing this in the, in the context. I'm being a pastor elder. I'm in the ministry so that I can get rich. Now, that's very rarely happening. But um, I'm doing this as a means. My primary motivation in doing this is money, not people. And a pastor should never, ever oversee. He should never, ever look over the church for that reason. Wayne Grudem warns us, greed and selfish interest are so near at hand in all human hearts that especially in this work, pastors must be constantly guarded against it. We should never ever enter the ministry or be a pastor shepherd just for financial gain. Never motivated motivated by money. And so I think maybe a better way to think about this, maybe an easier way to apply this, not just to pastor elders, but to all of us, is this. We should live by the principle in James chapter 2, verse 1, 7, which is, uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which is this. Um, Every person should be treated the exact same, no matter who they are. Let me read James 2, 1 through 7. So in in this particular context, there's favoritism being shown, And so this is what he says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold out the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention only to the one who wears fine clothing, you say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you sit over there, sit down by my feet. Have you not made then distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not, not the ones who blaspheme you and honorable? Sorry. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So the principle there is this. Treat everyone the same. Treat everyone the same. So as we're looking at elders, you don't go into the ministry for shameful gain Um, You don't go in the ministry to try to make yourself rich. And the principle I think that we can apply then, if we're going to try to apply this congregational-wide is, treat everybody the same. Not just the rich people. I mean, there are ways that pastors, and I have seen it, where they hang out with the people that have things. So generally because they invite pastors and they get the golf invites and they get the dinner stuff. Like, that's that's not pastorly. Pastorly is, which, you know, I'm not a golfer anyway, so it wouldn't work for me. But the whole point is, like, you you don't hang out with people just that have the money, just to have um, some kind of shameful, selfish gain. Instead, everybody, no matter who they are, you treat them the exact same. Um, The way that we've cautioned or or, or guarded ourselves here at Remedy is, which we tell you in the new members classes, um, Jack and I don't know how much people give. We have no idea. We know if you give, but I don't know how much. And I don't want to know. There are pastors that do that in other churches. I just can't figure out how to walk that line um, and, and not treat people differently. So I just know if. I have no idea. And, I, and I'll call if you haven't given in a while, if you're a member. But I have no idea the figures. I have no idea. Because I want to treat everybody the exact same. And as does Jack. So we should not... 
um, as pastor elders do it for shameful game. Now I want you to notice the contrast here. In verse 2 he says, not for shameful game, but eagerly. So he doesn't say, not for shameful game, not for shameful game, but for honest gain. He doesn't say that. Instead he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And that's a higher calling, I think, to say, but I can just do it for honest gain. No, he's saying, but eagerly, the pastor in his heart, the, the elder of the church, elders of the church, in their heart should be eager to oversee and care for the church. Which brings us back to what I said. We should be willing and want to care for the church, tend for them, care for them, love them. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Because it's, it's, it's easy just to say, I'm not going to do it for shameful, but honest gain. It's harder to say, I'm not going to do it for shameful gain, but not just for honest gain, but eagerly want to serve. Like, I want to be around them. I want to hang out with them. I want to care for them. I want to walk through tragedy. I want to celebrate with them the great joys of life. So, the second characteristic is not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The third one is this. Verse 3. Not domineering over theirs in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering, but being examples. The third characteristic of an overseer is that we're not domineering. But instead, contrast that with everything in us. We should be able to say, look at me. Watch me. If you want an example on how to be a husband, if you want an example on how to be a dad, if you want an example on how to live as a believer, look at me. (laughs) That's scary. Not going to lie. That's scary because just like you, I'm in desperate need of the chief shepherd. So domineering, let's look at that. Not domineering. This is forcefully harsh and ruling over them in a dominating way. This is what he means. You shouldn't dominate people, but instead you should be an example. This means you should not love power and do everything you can for power. Piper's just got an amazing quote here. The best thing for me to do is just read this magnificent paragraph. This is what he says. Domineering over implies that the elder shepherd is driven by the love of power. Not the love of people, but just the love of power. Being over people. He gets an ego high from flaunting his authority and prestige and dominance. He needs to be up front. He likes the best seats in the synagogue, as Jesus said. He likes to be addressed with titles. He craves the praise and the dependence of men. He may be a boisterous, domineering sort. Or he may manipulate people with feigned pain or wounded hero. He may be a consummate politician who measures his words as to curry the favor of the powerful and enhance his security in office. Those things should not be the way that a pastor elder lives. Humble instead. Being an example. He should be an example. If we're going to extend that out to you, this is the most, I mean, one of the most um, convicting questions. Can you say to whoever is around you living their life as a believer, 
look at me as an example. Live your life the way, like the way I'm living. I mean, we're all supposed to be able to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. This is what Paul says to people. It's not, you know, an ego boost to say, hey, follow me as I follow. That's actually what Paul says. It's biblical. Can you say, I'm not going to dominate. Community group leaders, can you say that? Follow me as an example. Moms, dads, roommates, whoever you're with, can you look at them and say, follow me as an example. I'm not going to dominate you. I'm not going to domineer you with my, the way I think. Instead, I want to be a servant example to you and, and, and live in such a way that you can say that person exudes the way that Christ should live. I know, believe me, I know that that's a tall order. But that's the way we're supposed to live. And here's the thing. What's, what's the thing that drives us to be able to do that? In context, I could ask this question. What keeps pastors going whenever the job is hard? What is it that we say, it's worth it because there's great reward if you continue to be a pastor elder? Well, verse 4 is the great reward. Not just for me, but for all of us. But there is something here for pastor elders for sure. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive, look at this, the unfading crown of glory. Pastor elders are promised something here in the text that seems to be exclusive to pastor elders. The unfading crown of glory. Now, we're all promised heaven. There's no question. So that's why we would all endure. But here, pastor elders are going to have in heaven the unfading crown of glory. And that that is reason to endure. What are you saying, Fudd? Are you saying that somehow in heaven you're going to have something better than me? Maybe I am. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what that means. I'm just kidding. I don't think I am. But there is something there. I don't know what it is, you know. I do know that the one who's promising is a pretty good gift giver. So I feel like it's probably going to be good. Um, but in the end, <clears throat> if, it's, if it's just glorification, like you're receiving glorification, I'm fine with that too. Um, we don't really know, but I think that the point is this, for pastors, for community group leaders, for anybody that seems to have any kind of people that they're wanting to love desperately and oversee, there's great solace uh, when pastoring is tough to know that the chief shepherd is going to appear one day and bring us into glory. And that that's the great reward. Is Jesus himself. I, I encourage you to read. God is the gospel. By John Piper. The, the greatest thing about the gospel. Is not heaven. It's not forgiveness of sins. It's not cancer being faded away. Those things are all good byproducts. But the greatest thing is. You get God. You get to have Jesus. Straight away. And that's what we're being promised here. <clears throat> So, one of the, one of the joys I've, I've been experiencing here lately at Remedy is this. Let me, let me, uh, let me stop before we go into the next section and, and just say, um, pastoring here for the last seven years has been a great joy. It hasn't been, um, it hasn't been in a lot of comparisons, extremely difficult. We're, we're pretty no drama church. I'm a pretty no-drama guy. Jack's a pretty no-drama guy, so not a whole lot of drama comes in, and I'm, I'm, gr- I'm grateful for that. As a matter of fact, not only that, I've also seen 
you really shepherd and pastored your, your people around you will. Community group leaders, there's been times where, um, there's been times where things that I think, you know, I should know about, I found out days later, like, did you hear about so-and-so? And like, pretty bad thing happened. I'm like, no, I didn't hear about that. No one told me. Oh, that happened two days ago and the community group leaders already come around and like cared for them. I'm like, well, awesome. That's awesome. I didn't even know about it. Awesome. So let me say, um, God has been extremely gracious uh, to have community group leaders in this church that really do want to have these things true in their life and really care for you well and be there for you and come around you when tragedy happens, help you move, help you celebrate babies, help you walk through tragedies. Um, and it's just been awesome to, uh, to hear that several days later when I finally found out something, I don't even have to do anything because you're loving your people well. And I want to say, please keep that up. Please keep that up. Tell me earlier, but please keep that up. <laughs> um, the, Lord's been, the Lord's been kind. All right, that's the first section. So the second section is where we're going to move into uh, things that the church should know. So we've officially moved away where I'm just preaching to Jack. And even though I was preaching to all of you, and now I'm preaching to everybody, um, even though I was already preaching to everybody. So <clears throat> verse five is a shift. And now these are, these are behaviors that the church should have. Um, behaviors of the church or the people of the church, obviously. So... <coughs> The first one is there in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So the first thing is this. Um, You who are church members here at Remedy Church, you should submit to the leadership of the church. You should submit to the elders. This is is coming off a, a kind of a big idea over the last few chapters of submission. If you've been with us, you know that that started back all the way in chapter 2, verse 13, where Peter tells us that we should submit to uh, every human institution, whether it be our governance. There's 2.18. Um, back in that day, there was slaves and masters, and he's saying slaves should sl- submit to their masters. Even in verse 3, wives submit to their husbands. So there's been a, a kind of an ongoing uh, teaching on submission, and now we're getting to this, and in the same way, he's carrying that out, and he's saying... Uh, the church, you should submit to your elders. Now, I, I know that he says that it's just to the younger. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. And so you could be saying, ah, it's just the young people have to submit. We all don't have to. I, I don't think that that's the case. Um, I think it does mean everybody. But Peter is likely picking on something, picking up on something that's true uh, in, in all generations, which is um, generally, if you need to say something repeatedly, it's the younger people that need to hear it a little more often because they forget. Usually, those that are older have already got it down. Um, so I think that that's probably the case. He's not saying those that are older in the church don't have to submit to the elders, just the younger. Uh, I think it's saying all. Um, but here, the general principle is this. You should submit to the, the leadership of the elders. As long as, as long as Jack and I are giving you no reason not to, you should submit to us um, in the way that we lead. Um, this past week, John Piper wrote an article on Desiring God. It is in the context of marriage and submission. 
six things that submission is not for wives to husbands. And I just took that and I'm applying it. Instead of husbands and wives, I've changed some of the wording. You can check out the actual wording and applying it to church members and elders. And I want to I give these six things that submission is not. Because sometimes when you say submission, automatically we, we can all kind of rebel against it. Um, but this is what he says. Submission is not agreeing with everything. So when we say su- you should submit to the elders, submission is not agreeing with everything. But also don't be a naysayer about everything. But submission is not agreeing with everything. That's not what submission is. Submission does not mean that you leave your brain at the altar. You should constantly be thinking and uh, taking the things that we say and, and running them through the grid of scripture. Not just assuming that everything we say is correct because I'm just as flawed as you are. So it doesn't mean you check your brain at the altar. These are really good ones after this. Submission does not mean you, try, you don't try to influence positively your elders. You still should try to influence. We want, um, we want those that are thoughtful to come to us and say, have you thought about this? Because I'm a church member just like you. I'm also a church member just like you. Submission does not mean this is really good. Putting the will of the elders before the will of Christ. That's not what submission means. The will of Christ is always predominant. It's always the most important. And so if there's things that the elders here are leading you into that are contrary to scripture. (laughs) You don't do what we say then. You always follow scripture. Submission, this one. This is maybe my favorite. Submission does not mean getting all of their spiritual strength through the elders. Jesus is the primary source of your strength, your spiritual strength, not me. There's no way that I'll ever or Jack will ever be able to live up to that tall order. So don't put it on us. Christ and his word, your community, through the power of the Holy Spirit is where you should be seeking your spiritual strength, not just Sunday morning sermons. The only time you hear the word of God, read the word of God, meditate on the word of God is Sunday morning sermons. You're doing yourself a great disservice. Do not derive all of your spiritual strength just from me and Jack on Sundays. That's dangerous. You wouldn't be able to do some of the other ones, like especially number four. Submission is not putting the will of elders before the will of Christ. You wouldn't know the will of Christ if you're only hearing Jack and I teach on Sundays, and that's it. Um, submission does not mean living or acting in fear either. It should be a joy to follow those you trust is basically the point. So this is, um, when we're going into this, and I know that there are pastors, maybe even in your history, that have done damage to the idea of submission. Jack and I, and our goal, and all the elders that ever will be, I'm not going to overuse the submission card here. So there should be no fear in submitting and following our leadership. This is what I want you to think. I beg you to try this. All of your power, um, listen, hear, and follow. Listen, hear, and follow the things that Jack and I are asking you to do when they're good for your soul to help you grow in Christ Jesus. When they're good for you to do. So here's your litmus test. This is... This is what I want you to ask yourself. Here's the litmus test. Whenever we are presenting anything, this is a litmus test. Is what they're saying, is it designed to grow my soul in Christ and cause me to love Jesus more and be more grateful for the gospel? 
What they're asking me to do right now, is it, is it designed to grow my soul up in Christ, cause me to love Jesus more, and be more grateful for the gospel? And if the answer is yes, then you have no reason, I think, not to follow. And you should submit to our leadership. So like if Jack and I say, you should, with all of your heart and strength, put yourself in more situations where you are around unbelievers in order to share the gospel with them so that they can get saved. I think you're all going to say, yes, that's designed to grow my soul in Christ, cause me to love Jesus more, and be more grateful for the gospel. So yes, I'm going to start doing that. It's difficult. It seems awkward sometimes. I don't do a good job. These are the kinds of things. Those, you should pursue holiness. You should read the Bible. You should be present more. You shouldn't be here two times per month. You should be here four times per month. You should be on time. Like all these things are not, not like, I can't believe he's asking me to do that. Because they, they fall through the slipmas test. It's designed to grow my soul in Christ. It's designed to cause me to love Christ more. And it's designed for me to be more grateful for the gospel. Whenever we ask you, I think, I know those things are hard. But whenever we ask you or try to lead you towards these things. Our natural inclination, and mine too, is to kind of rebel. Wait a second, what are you saying? I understand. But realize, um, I'm not one... And Jack's not one, and anybody that will be an elder, we're not one to try to overuse that submission card. You should just submit what we're saying. Our deep desire, as we went all the way back up, is because we care. With tears, as Paul said in Acts 20. There's an emotional investment that I'm going to promise you that I'm going to constantly make. I deeply, Jack, deeply loves you. And so the things that we want to lead you in is not for our gain, for yours spiritually so as long as we are leading you in those things you should submit to the leadership of the church the next one is this um, Wayne Grudem actually says uh, in verse 5b clothe yourselves he said this should be a brand new sentence and a brand new paragraph he actually wants there to be a, a division there where it says clothe yourselves uh, and I, I agree that we're continuing a different idea um, from what may be above. The next thing is this. So five through seven is the next point, which is this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That section right there. It's, I think, all kind of put together under this second charge. The first one is submit to the, the leadership of the elders. The second one is everyone, all of us, should humble ourselves towards God and each other. That, that's the general gist of 5B through 7. We should humble ourselves. Everyone, all of you, should be humble toward God and each other. And I'm, I'm going to play the uh, the... The why, how, why kind of game here. Why should we do that? Why should we do that? It's right there in the text. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Why should you humble yourself before God and others? Because God opposes you if you don't. And he gives grace to you if you do. How do you do it? Um, the uh, participle of verse 7, casting, um, 
that, that, that's, it's good that it's all in one sentence in the ESV. So you should read it this, this, this way. Humble yourselves, verse 6, by, just put the word by and then go straight into verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the one way how that you humble yourselves is by casting all of your anxieties on Jesus. I mean, just, just think about that for a second. If you literally took your huge bucket of anxieties, and me too, that we all carry around that we can't trust God to give, and we just say, okay, God, I'm going to humble myself by saying, you can handle this better, and just, here they are. That's how you do it. If you're, if you're wondering what it means to humble myself before God, it means take all your anxieties that you just can't trust him with, which he can handle way better than you, and you just say, here they all are. Again, why? Because he opposes you if you don't. That, the proud are the ones that hold on to them and don't cast them on him. But he gives grace to those who do. The moment they're cast toward him, He gives you grace. And you need to know this. When you do that, the reason why you do it is not just because he gives you grace, but also the end of verse 7. Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Some of you, that's an easy concept to, to get. You've always understood it and you've always got it that God cares for you and God loves you. But some of you, it's still difficult for you to believe that. Listen. Wounded person by the world that doesn't believe that. Listen. The God of the universe cares for you. More deeply than anyone in the world. He cares for you. He cares about you. Everything that's going on in your life, he's concerned with. Nothing's too small for him to think that that's important. He doesn't halfway listen to your stuff while he does something more important. He cares about you. So, let's humble ourselves. What can you and I do? To be more humble toward one another and toward God. Just big question to write down the answer to. Don't answer out loud. What can you and I do, start doing, to really be more humble towards each other and towards God? Here's the last one. The last thing that we should be doing. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Resist him, the devil. Firm in your faith. The way to resist that roaring lion is to, to be firm in your faith. You're, gonna not, you're gonna, not gonna believe what I'm saying. Be gospel-centered. Trust the gospel. Trust the good news of the gospel. Being gospel-centered resists the devil. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So here's the third thing. Um, I put beware of the devil. But beware means be sober and watchful. It's right there in the text. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Beware. 
This means to have sound judgment and be spiritually alert. Sound judgment. Where is the one place that you can bank on to have sound judgment? The Bible. And be spiritually alert. Who is the one person that can keep you spiritually alert? The Holy Spirit. Because, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is literally swallow up. Now, in the Bible, when it speaks about the devil in the Old Testament, it doesn't use an animal, it doesn't use a lion, it uses the serpent. And he tells us why, because the serpent was more crafty. He sneaks up on you. I don't know anybody that would ever say, a roaring lion just snuck up on me. (laughs) Right? You can hear him from a mile away, you see him coming, and he's going to destroy you. So, when you hear this, don't erase the, the craftiness. He's crafty, like the Old Testament. But the, the point Peter's trying to make here is that he's powerful. Do not forget how amazingly powerful he is. You and I are not stronger than him. God is infinitely stronger than him. But we are not. So don't try to, you know, man up on him and think you're going to take him in a cage match. Instead, be sober-minded and watchful. Grudem says the opposite of this exhortation of being sober, this, the opposite of this sober watchfulness is a kind of, I want you to just listen. Does this characterize the way you spiritually live your life the last month, the last year? I hope not. The opposite of sober watchfulness is a kind of spiritual drowsiness, drowsiness in which one sees and responds to situations no differently than unbelievers. And God's perspective on each event is seldom, if ever, even considered. I hope that's not characteristic of the way you live your life. But if it is, you are not taking the power of the devil seriously. He is a roaring lion and all he wants to do is absolutely destroy you. As a matter of fact, resist him firm in your faith. His goal is to strip away your faith and crush you. To make you not have trust in Jesus anymore. That's his desire. And the means by which he's going to do it is putting suffering on you. That's what he says. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers. He wants to see you suffer. So much so that your faith is stripped. And he can do it. Unless you are sober-minded and watchful you know the strength of the enemy and you stand firm in your faith you are sober minded you cling to the word and you're watchful as in you spiritually alert and you cling to the holy spirit there's the one of the best examples i've ever seen of this is this it's an illustration a long time ago it's like circa 97 98 98 i was at this ski retreat um, and the speaker was was preaching on this text. I was, uh, I was just playing guitar that day. I wasn't speaking. So um, he said, he was talking about the, the, the seriousness of being 
um, sober-minded, that the, the devil wants to take you out. And if you're not watching, this is what it's like. It's like you wake up and you get all. So at the ski retreat, he had this guy on the first row already prepared. He said, what I want you to do, big old dude, he was a small guy. He goes, what I want you to do is as soon as I am walking, and he didn't have a stage, as soon as I walk out into the main row, I want you to stand up and I want you to just crush me. Luke Keekly tackling me down to the ground. He didn't say Luke Keekly, Like destroy me, on, just crush me. And he's like, all right, sounds good to me. Like, tell a teenager, I want you to attack me as hard as you can as soon as I walk out while I'm preaching. Okay, like, that's all you have to say, especially a big old dude. So he's saying, you wake up, and you stretch in, and you get out of your bed, you get your coffee, and maybe you do a Bible, maybe you don't. You're getting ready, you're about to go to school, and you walk out of your door, and as soon as he's like, everybody's just thinking about, I'm walking out my door, this dude just crushes him on the floor. And he like, pops back, and everybody's like, freaking out, oh my gosh, the guy tackled the speaker. All the youth guys are like, what happened? Why'd you tackle him? And the guy pops back up, and he goes, that's exactly what the devil's like every day. As soon as you walk out, he's ready to crush you. Like it was like the best illustration ever. And listen, it's the exact same thing. The moment you walk out of the door, as soon as you get up, you think you're prepared and you haven't prepared yourself. You're not getting your mind spiritually humble. You're not, getting your, you're not being sober-minded and watchful. He is absolutely ready to devour you. He hates Jesus. He wants your faith stripped and he will inflict as much suffering as he can on you. Don't underestimate him. Instead, beware, flee, cling to Christ who is infinitely more stronger than him. Infinitely more stronger. And there's an intentional vagueness in verse 10. After you suffer a little while, we will all are going to suffer in some ways because he will. We're not always 100% firm in our faith. We want to be. We, we strive for that. We never don't. But some of us will suffer a little while. That little while is um, intentionally vague in the Greek. It could mean your life. It could mean truly light and momentary afflictions. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Romans 8.18, it could mean your whole life. But this is what's going to happen. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself do these four things. God will do this. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. He will restore you. He will make fully prepared or complete with all respects any resource or ability that you lost during suffering. He will fully restore you. He will confirm you. He will put you back in your right position, rightful privilege or responsibility that suffering took you away. He will strengthen you. He will overcome the weakness that you have experienced during the suffering. And he will establish you. He will put you in the rightful place of which the suffering that was wrongly done to you removed you away from. This is what he's promising that he will do. Not for your glory. It's not like you're going to be all of a sudden on a higher level than Jesus. But these are the things that he's going to do. If you want to sum that all up, all loss... That, was, that happened during this suffering will be made right for all eternity. That's pretty awesome. Let me close with this. Don't forget verse 11, by the way. It's awesome. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, I'm gonna, I want to close with this paragraph from Grudem. It's, I, who can improve on, on, a, on this? I mean, I, I, I couldn't. This comforting thought is strengthened what we just read, this comforting thought is strengthened by the reminder that God is the God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. 
That is the realm that really counts for it lasts forever. In that realm, the manifold excellence of God's character is given spectacular expression in his eternal glory. Something that ordinarily would cause us to remain distant and fearful all. Yet, God has decided that we should not remain distant, but that we should be summoned into the midst of his own glory. Yes, even that we should come in Christ to share in it. Partially now and more fully in the life to come. Here's the, pro- abu- here's the promise of abundant great- grace sufficient to overcome any suffering in this life. Any suffering we'll ever experience will ultimately and finally be replaced with the fact that we are ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ forever. That's a really good deal. So as we're looking at these last three examples or these last three challenges for us, as church members, we follow the earthly leaders. We submit to the earthly leaders that he's given to us. We humble ourselves before God and each other. And we're watchful because the adversary wants to defeat us. And the way that we do that is by trusting in the gospel dwelling in the word to make ourselves sober and trusting that the Holy Spirit to make ourselves watchful spiritually alert and one day he will come back and usher us into eternity with him it's amazing we're going to go into a time of reflection here I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit in some way has moved in your heart. One of these things that we said today has been pointed in and said, this particular thing, I want you to trust me more. This particular thing, I want you to step up more. This particular thing, I want you to be more loving. I want you to serve more here. I want you to be more obedient here. I I don't know. But this is what I want you to do. As we have this next few songs, I want you to pray, I want you to stand, and I want you to sing out with all the breath in your lungs, giving glory to Christ. Because he's infinitely worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, you're just, you're just so good to us. We're absolutely undeserving. And you're just, you're just so good to us. And many times our lives don't reflect gratefulness. But I'm convinced, God, that for those that are in Christ here at Remedy, they want to. So God, I pray that you would fill us with the Spirit, equip us with your word that evermore, continually, we would live out this precious promise of great uh, verse four looking continually hoping trusting desiring wanting for the chief shepherd to finally appear and give us the crown of glorification that's our hope it's our only hope jesus you're our only hope 
pray that we live our lives believing that, knowing that, living that out. Be with my friends here, Holy Spirit, as you're working on their hearts. I pray that as they might be convicted, they'll realize that there's no condemnation and that you always comfort them and lead them into a deep desire to want to worship you. Pray that we all will worship you now in spirit and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.